John chapter number 6. John chapter number 6 tonight. I'd like to begin reading at verse number 1. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. You've probably heard about this ever since you were a child in Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school as a child. And I preached on it on many occasions, but God gave me a truth in it and, and a message, and I just want to exhort you tonight a little bit in the Word of God. John chapter number 6, <clears throat> beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his lads, or one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was uh, much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes, as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. And thank you that you are a God that keeps his promises that cares for his people, Lord, that you're a trustworthy God that we can lean on in these times. Lord, I pray that you'd just help us tonight as we approach the word of God. May our heart be gladdened and encouraged by it. Lord, may the areas of our life that are not in submission to you, may they be convicted and, 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 and challenged and faced and confronted. And Lord, may as we leave this place tonight, may we find ourselves in a closer walk with thee, Lord, and in a greater state of obedience to you. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I've had a message on my heart all day today, and I've been thinking about it. And I really don't know why. I trust that the Holy Spirit is uh, guiding, directing in this respect. But, you know, Christmas is a hard time for a lot of people. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about that. You know, we'll talk about, of course, it's a difficult time for those that are grieving, especially if you lost someone around this time of the year and you're reminded of that. Or maybe you lost someone important to you this past year and this is your first Christmas without them. You know, it's a difficult time in many respects. And then for folks that just feel like they do not have very many people in life, a lot of times it can be difficult to see other people surrounded by and supported by family that they feel like they do not experience and enjoy in the same respect. But, you know, one of the greatest reasons that I think this is such a difficult time is because it's a time when a great many people are struggling financially. It's a time when there is a... <laughs> Amen, Brother Mike. <laughs> that, mean, that means he got somebody a good Christmas present this year. Amen. And uh, it's a time when people are struggling financially. Now, that's always been true. But you understand it's probably more true right now than it is at most other times. Um, I mean, there, there, you know, there's a lot of things that you can uh, thank President Biden for. And, and uh, one of them is that we've all learned we have to lean on the Lord a little more. Amen. 
And uh, we're living a time, man, it's hard. It's hard just to live. Now, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying God is wonderful and my church is precious to me and y'all meet our family's needs. And none of this is said by way of of, of poor mouthing or, or sticking a hand out. I just say I know a lot of people in life right now that are struggling to get by. They're struggling to make ends meet. The things that they have always done, they're still doing, and it just seems like it don't go as far as it used to go. And a great many of them even have tried to take measures and steps and, and, and you know, say, well, we'll try to tighten it up and live closer and, and, and cut everything deeper. And, and But still they find that it's a struggle and it's a challenge to get by. And, you know, one of the precious truths in the Word of God is that you and I as a child of God, we don't have to live a life that is angst-ridden over our needs. We have a Heavenly Father that knows what we have need of and that is without limit to His resources and that can meet your needs and my needs in our life. And one of the things that encourages me, especially as a pastor and, and, and leading a church and praying for families, many of which are struggling to make ends meet, is to know that God meets the needs of His people and that we can go to God and that He will provide for us and uh, where we have need, he has supply. Amen. And there's probably no clearer example of that in Scripture than the text before us tonight. And so here's what I want to do. I want us to just walk through this passage and I want us to walk through it with this thought in our hearts. What God's provision looks like. What does it look like when God's meeting a need in somebody's life? And what can you and I as the children of God expect out of our Lord to meet our needs? And what does he ask and expect of us that he might be able to meet the needs in our life. When the Lord comes uh, off the mountain, he is met by a multitude of individuals that have been following him. They've heard his teachings and they have followed him out into the wilderness. They are literally helpless individuals. Uh, the Bible tells us that one of the concerns the Lord had was that if he left them to their own and they tried to go out and find resources and find uh, the needs uh, that they had to be met, that they would perish in the way that they literally would not make it back. You know, this is literally a matter of life and death. Let me make this passing statement. Sometimes God will put you in a place where the need you have of him is as desperate as life and death. Uh, there's no promise that God won't put you in in situations where not depending on him uh, will uh, not bring dire consequences. There are times that the needs that God allows in your life are meaningful, real, severe, desperate needs. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't meet those needs. But it does mean, hey, it's not an incidental thing if we decide not to come to the Lord over those needs. It's not an unmeaningful thing if we don't seek the Lord to meet the needs that we have in our life. And so this great vast throng of people are there. And there is a great need that they be fed. And the Lord meets that need in their lives on this day. I want you to notice four thoughts with me tonight, and then we'll be done. Notice when we look at God's provision in this passage, look at verse number five. The Bible says, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? There are four things that define this passage. And the first is this. There is an impossible need in this passage. Now, you're saying, well, preacher, I came to church here something I ain't never heard before. And I'm sorry, I might disappoint you tonight if that's your thoughts and expectations. But here's what I want you to not miss in this passage. God can't meet a need that isn't there in the first place. I'm going to say it again. God can't meet a need that isn't there in the first place. 
You know, a lot of what's broken about our Christianity is we want to have a deep, meaningful relationship with a God that meets our needs without ever having any needs for him to meet in the first place. And when we read this passage, we find that if God's going to do a miracle in their lives, it is first going to require that there be an impossible need, something beyond their means to solve and to fix and to provide for. And, you know, often in your life, you will be faced with impossible needs, things that are not just a matter of you uh, reconfiguring the numbers, things that are not just a matter of you rebudgeting the situation. And let's just move beyond the realm of the monetary things sometimes that are not a matter of just eat better and exercise exercise more, things that sometimes aren't just a matter of be a kinder person and be more empathetic and listen better. There will be times in your life that God will introduce needs that are beyond your ability and means. When we read this passage, man, we, we see it opens up with an impossible need. Notice first the size of this need. The Bible says it's a great company. Now, we often call this passage the feeding of the 5,000, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that the group of people that numbered 5,000 was the men alone. And most commentators would speculate, and I think just most thinking people would probably surmise, that if you have a man and a wife and and likely two children, possibly many, many more at that time in human history, then it is not hard to imagine that you could be talking about a crowd that's 20, 30, 40, 50,000, 100,000 even large. In other words, this is not a small need that they have on this day. This is a God-sized need. Listen, I, I hope, and, and this is true for me like it's true for you, but I hope all of us can learn to rejoice for the God-sized needs in our life. Because oftentimes it'll take a God-sized need for a God the size of ours to show up and meet that need. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. God meets a thousand little needs I have in every way in my life. And I'm certainly not suggesting we should disregard the fact that God does those things. But I am saying that if you want to see God work in your life, you're going to have to grow comfortable with the fact there's times you're going to have to live by faith, times that you won't have a plan, times that you won't know the answer, times that you won't have a solution. Nothing is broken about your Christianity simply because you have to live by faith sometimes. In fact, Christianity is distinctly designed such that we have to live by faith a great many times. And we should live by faith at all times because we walk by faith and not by sight. And so if you find yourself tonight in a place where you say, preacher, you just wouldn't believe the size of the need that I have in my life. You wouldn't believe the size of the monetary need that God needs to meet. Preacher, you wouldn't understand the size of the relationship need that God needs to meet in my life. You wouldn't imagine the size of the health need that God needs to meet in my life. I'm here to tell you there's nothing wrong with that need being there. And it's likely that God very much in tends to meet that need in miraculous fashion. See, when I come to this passage, I see that if if God's people are going to learn that they need him, they're going to have to experience need. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with your life. I mean, listen, that's that's the same garbage the prosperity crowd preaches, that if you have some need in your life, you must have messed up. Uh, But I don't think this crowd messed up on this day. I don't think they needed Dave Ramsey there to teach them how to stuff lunch in envelopes and budget better. I think they were doing exactly what they needed to be doing that day. And I think God orchestrated for them to be in that situation that day that he might fill and meet their need. I see the size of this need. But notice number two, the sovereign over this need. Verse six is precious. And and honestly, I preach right here for months and never scratch the surface because Christ asked Philip a question. He says, Philip, I don't know why he asked Philip. (laughs) Imagine the look on Philip's face. (laughs) Me? 
Philip, when shall we buy bread that these may eat? (laughs) But notice what verse 6 says. And this he said to prove him. Now, what does that mean to prove him? Well, it means to test him, to bring something to the surface in him. Now, I would remind you that an omniscient God didn't do this for his own benefit, but he did this for Philip's sake. He wanted Philip to see what Philip would do when there was a need in his life. You know, sometimes God introduces need into your life and mine, and it's not because he wonders how we'll respond. He knows how we'll respond. It's because we need to learn something about ourselves, and we need to take a good close look at what we're looking to and leaning on to meet the needs in our life. One of the reasons our society is just unraveling at the very, uh, you know, join and at the very thread right now is because we have cultivated a society that looks to God to provide for them the way that they should look to God or to government to provide for them the way they should look to God to provide for them. And all of a sudden, when government's not doing that, nobody's getting cell phones and stimulus checks, then uh, society gets ready to just rip apart at the scene. But, you know, for you and I as a born-again child of God, we have no reason or cause for for distress or anxiety. We have a heavenly father that owns the cattle on a thousand hills and is sensitive to the needs of his people. And, you know, when we look at ourselves and how we respond in these situations, it ought to be that, that it causes us to pause and examine where our faith really, really lies. Is our faith lying in our job to provide for us? Now, listen, I think it's good for a man to work. I mean, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And I think it's it's healthy that we ought to apply ourselves and, and invest ourselves and our energy and time. And there's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, it's not that it's not that job that provides for your family. Uh, you may be looking to retirement or whatever people are allowed to have of it these days. But at the end of the day, it's not that retirement plan that you ought to be looking to to provide for you. I'm not advising you against prudent uh, saving and wisdom in those things. I'm just saying at the end of the day, all those things can be gone. And what will you be left with? Now, if you're saved by the by the spirit of God, by the blood of Christ, then you don't have to live a life of constant worry and anxiety over it. But it would help you to not have to wait until you are broke to pieces to learn that God will meet your needs. You don't have to wait until your life is in shambles to find out God will patch you together. You can learn that right now before you get to that place. So this he said to prove him. And then I like this next phrase. It's precious. For he himself knew what he would do. Never for a moment was Christ without a plan. It's interesting. When God asks us what we are going to do, it's not because he doesn't know what to do. But rather, it's because of two things. One, he's wanting us to examine ourselves. But two, he's wanting to give us opportunity to lean upon him to be our guide, our governance, our direction, and our provision. And in this passage, Jesus didn't look at Philip because he wanted to embarrass him or put him on the spot. He didn't look at Philip and ask him this because he wanted Philip to feel helpless and lost. But he did need Philip to recognize where the source of provision was in his life. At every moment, at every stage of this miracle... Christ had complete control and mastery of the situation. And there is never a need in your life that God doesn't always and forever and at every moment have the resources to meet. Whatever he does is never predicated on his resources. He always has the resources to meet your need, whatever it is in your life, be it monetary or far otherwise. He always has what it takes to meet the needs in your life. So I would say, number one, there is an impossible need in this passage. And if God's going to meet our needs, we're going to have to have needs. So let's not get angry at God for having needs. Let's instead get excited to watch God meet our needs. There's an impossible need. But then notice, number two, there is an inadequate means. Verse seven says this. Philip answered him, 
200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? I think that Philip's statement in verse number 7 is key to what Christ does in this passage. Uh, The question, why did he ask Philip this? Well, to prove him. What was Philip's response? It was to confess the inadequacy of what he had relative to the task and the need that was set before him. Notice two things in these verses. Number one, their resources are surveyed. Now, you can read commentators that will spend all this time talking about how much 200 penny worth is. Is it a lot? Is it a little? Is it how much Philip had? Is it how much they all had if they put it together? Is it an unthinkable amount? And he's saying even if we had that, it wouldn't be worth very much. But here is the reality. If they had 200 penny worth, it wasn't enough. If they didn't have 200 penny worth and it wouldn't have been enough, it still wouldn't have been enough. And Philip, at the end of the day, is confessing that the need that is set before them is far beyond their means and resources to meet. You know, one of the things you're going to have to do in your life to see God meet needs that you have is you first have to acknowledge and recognize your inability to meet those needs. That's part of the reason it's not a blessing to face need in your life. Because need has a way of clarifying your situation. Uh, riches have a way of deceiving a person. And don't get me wrong, I don't think God hates a rich man, and I don't think he's proud of a poor man for being poor. But I will say that I think there is a great danger. And by the way, this manifests in, in many different ways in people's lives. We could talk about wealth and poverty. We could also talk about health and sickness. We could talk about having relationships and support systems and loneliness and isolation. But whatever the need is and whatever the framework is that we're examining, one of the things that the Bible teaches is that having lesser of that matter is in no ways an impediment or hindrance to God's working in our life or the cultivating of our relationship with Him because it is in poverty that God works, not in plenty. In other words, God can do more with the less that you have than he can with the more that you have. And a man has never had too little for God to do something in his life. But a great many have had too many to allow God to work in their life. And so Philip first has to acknowledge, embrace, and confess that what they have is not enough. Let me just say, what you and I have, it's not enough. It's not enough. Now, all your bills may be paid. You may not have debt collectors ringing your phone off the hook. But you have a need somewhere in your life that is beyond your ability to address. I've got two preacher friends right now that are facing serious health difficulties. Uh, the Lord knows their names. You just pray for uh, Toby's preacher friends. God will know who that is. But uh, it's going to take God working in their health to change something. And then I know people whose homes are just in a shambles. I mean, I, you know, some of them kids just way out in the middle of nowhere. Some of them marriages on the rocks. I mean, some of them just in bitterness and, and anger and, 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 and misery. And it's going to take God to work in, in people's lives to fix that. In other words, in your life and mine, the first step is just simply acknowledging that we don't have the means to accomplish what must be done. And that it's going to take God to do it. I see their resources are surveyed. But then verse 8, something interesting happens. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many? 
Now, this is an interesting verse. There's a few things I think we can infer from it. One of the things I think we can infer, because I don't think it would be in the spirit of of the ministry of Christ and the testimony of the gospel, to suggest that they just found some poor old boy walking along with a lunch pail and snatched it from him. I think it is reasonable to expect that this young man had brought this lunch to them. Undoubtedly, he had heard adults sitting around talking about the great need. Undoubtedly, and you say, well, how do you know, preacher? Well, because these were Bible-believing people, and that means they were all the time talking about when they were going to eat next. And so no doubt they're sitting around saying, well, how are we going to have this need met in, in our life? I mean, I didn't bring anything. Did you bring anything? Somebody said, I got some Tic Tacs. And another person says, shut up with your Tic Tacs. Nobody wants your Tic Tac. You know, somebody says, I got some, uh, I got some trail mix. <laughs> and no doubt they were sitting around talking about these great needs that they had. And probably this young man heard that. Now, one of the interesting things I'll notice, and this isn't part of my message, maybe it is, we'll see what the Lord does with it, but it's a thought that has often arrested my attention, is I don't think this young man brought this meal to Jesus expecting Jesus to do with it what he did. I don't think he brought it to Jesus thinking, well, all Jesus needs is, you know, five loaves and two fishes and he'll feed this outfit. Because had he understood that truth in reality, he would have recognized that Christ could have commanded these stones to be turned into bread. So I don't think that was his perspective. I rather think that he probably sat there and everybody talked about how nobody had anything to eat. And this thought probably occurred to him. I don't know if Jesus has anything to eat. And if there's anybody on this hillside that shouldn't go hungry on this day, it it surely is Jesus. And so I'm going to bring this to Jesus just to make sure that he has what he needs. Now, there's a great truth there about how God meets needs in our lives. Let me say it this way. If we will make meeting God's needs first in our life, then God will make sure our needs are met in our life. If we will prioritize glorifying Him, pleasing Him, and seeing His needs being met, uh, then I guarantee you God will meet our needs in our life. But what I find interesting is that they take these things, whatever the context, whatever the backstory is, they take what they have And they put it in the hands of Jesus. And I would say in your life and in my life, if we're going to see our needs met, it's going to require us taking what resources we have and laying them before the Lord and saying, now, Lord, these are yours and not mine. And I'm trusting you to do with them what needs to be done. One of the things that I think is human nature, and we find it manifest in all sorts of ways in society, is to hoard things. There's an instinct in the flesh whenever things get tight to want to sort of circle the wagons and and hold everything close and try to, in our own energy, secure some kind of stability and, and security in our life. But it's interesting to note that more was done with a with an attitude of liberality to the Lord than could have done with an attitude of frugality in this boy's life. They have to take this and put it in God's hands and trust God with it. Now, there's two things I'd say about that and move on. One, you need to take your needs and put them in God's hands. That's part of what this exercise is when we find ourselves at an altar. And I don't think there's anything magical about this stretch of of carpet out in front of us or these steps. I, I believe it's really about the altar of our heart. But I will say that, you know, the altar is important if it's important. And what I mean by that is if God's dealing with you to be down here, then just as a simple act of obedience, you ought to honor the Lord. And do that, not let that be an issue or a stumbling block in your life. But it's not about this this spatial area up here in front of the platform. 
But rather it's about taking these matters, these needs, and instead of just trying to resolve them ourselves, bringing it to the Lord and saying, Now, Lord, I desperately need your help, and I desperately need your solution to this matter. But then I would say number two, and well, I'll tell you what, let's just, let's just preach a little further. I think we'll get there anyway. I, there's an impossible need. There is an inadequate means. But I want you to look at verse 10. Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. So the third thing that I see in this passage is there is an irrational method in how God meets this need. Now, I say that reverently, because at the end of the day, surely it's the omniscient God that sets the terms of what's rational. But relative to human thinking, you understand. I mean, if we were all sitting around having a church meeting about how to meet this need, and somebody reached up their hand and said, well, preacher, why don't you just take that roast beef and that chicken and that ham and start breaking it and feeding it to people? I'd probably hit you in the mouth. I'd reckon you're a smart aleck. And I'd say, if you ain't got nothing helpful to say, just go sit in the car. No, I mean, that's not that's not a rational way to fix this, is it? I, in human terms, nobody would, would venture to say that this is what would happen. And it reminds me of this, at least framed according to human thinking, we would call this a deeply irrational way of God meeting this need. He did something nobody expected that day. I can't tell you the times God has did th- done things nobody expected in my life. I mean, times that he's met needs and <laughs> I mean, you could have knocked me over with a feather when I saw how God did it. If you had given me a million and one guesses as to how God would have met that need, I would have never come within a hundred miles of how God did it. This is not unlike God. In fact, this is exactly like God to do things in divine means, in divine methods Things that don't compute and, and don't come, you know, they're not compatible with our perspective and with our idea. So notice two things about this irrational method. Notice, number one, the prerequisite of the miracle. I love verse 10. Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. And let me make this passing comment before I make my point. It's interesting to note that before their bellies were ever empty, God had already grown grass on that hillside. Before your need ever surfaced in your life, God has already orchestrated the means to meeting that need in your life. (laughs) One of the, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel's been praying and asking God to intervene and, and there's, there's much we could say about that chapter and, 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 and the spiritual entities that, that hinder Daniel's prayer and God's, but it's interesting to note that it takes 21 days for God's answer to reach Daniel. But the first thing the angel says when he sees Daniel is he says, from the day that thou prayed, thy voice was heard. In other words, long before the answer ever showed up on Daniel's doorstep, God had already been working in his life. God had already been orchestrated. And it's interesting to note, before their bellies were ever empty, God had already grown the grass in that location. But here's what I want you to notice. Notice the prerequisite of the miracle. Before God could work this miracle, they had to sit down. There wasn't no eating standing around. He said, I want you to go and sit down. 
Now, that's interesting to me. There would have been nothing wrong if they had eaten that food standing up. But why did he ask them to sit down? You know, often in our lives, God will give us something upon which our faith must act. Something upon which our faith must act. And this was him giving an opportunity for them to exercise faith in him. He didn't just dump the the, the solution in their lap. First, he said, I want you to trust me and express faith in me. They sat down. Why? Two reasons. One, they were told to. Number two, somebody said, I think Jesus is getting ready to feed us. Let's all sit down and eat. And they said, could have said one of two things. They could have said, you're crazy. He ain't listen. He ain't carrying enough bread and fish to feed this crowd. But instead, they said, I don't know how he'll do it. (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it'll appear. And I don't know how he'll provide. But if he says he's going to do it, I believe he's going to do it. So he gave some means for them to exercise or express their faith in him. And, you know, that reminds me of sort of the dual responsibilities that you and I have in our life as God meets our need. The first is obedience. Obedience. They had to obey the command that was given them. Uh, now, you can yeah, listen, you can look, you can look in your Bible, you can search your concordance, tear it all to pieces and you won't find this. This is this is pure all unspeculated Toby Weber opinion. I hope you're ready for it. It's a hundred proof. All right. But it's my opinion that if anybody had refused to sit down, they wouldn't have ate. In other words, if they had refused to submit, I think they probably wouldn't have had their need met that day. Now, if you don't think that's true, that's all right. I've said enough true things tonight. Give me a little grace. But I think probably that it required their obedience. And God's met a lot of needs to me when I've been obedient and when I've been disobedient too. He's kind to the unthankful and to the evil, the wicked. And he's met needs that he, he didn't have to meet, but he's just a gracious God. But in the proper order of how God meets needs in our life, the first thing he requires is we need to be obedient to him. Amen. Don't Hey, listen, I t- I'll tell you one place that God didn't break any bread and distribute any fishes, and that was in the far country for that prodigal. He just let him get hungry. And in our life, it's not to suggest that a need is an indication of some level of disobedience in our life, but it is to suggest this, that if we have that need and we desire for it to be met, then the first thing we should be asking ourselves is, is there any area of my life in which I'm not living in obedience to him? You know, oftentimes God uses those circumstances to bring about a consciousness or an awareness of our disobedience to him. And I'll just tell you this, man, I've been to God's woodshed enough times. I don't want to learn no more lessons. Not that way. And if I've got a need in my life, I want God to be able to meet it without having to first wrestle me in to the pupil's chair and educate me on some matter of my life that is incorrect. I just want to be obedient to him so that when he meets that need, I might be able to rejoice and praise him for it. Required obedience. Number two, it required faith. Now, faith is not uh, merely assuming God will do things that he has not said he would and then demanding petulantly like a child that he do them. But faith is rather looking at God's promises, his commandments, his word, his truth, and saying, I am going to behave as though those things are reality because, in fact, they are reality. They sat down and there was no food for them when they sat down. The bread had not been broken. The fish had not been broken. There was no bread for them when they sat down. But they sat down because Christ said there'll be bread. 
And in our lives, we respond in faith to what God has said because we believe and understand his word to be true and that he will always act in accordance to it. I see the prerequisite of the miracle, but then I see the process of the miracle. And I'll be quick with this. I won't take long, but I want you to notice how Jesus did it. Verse number 11, Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. Notice three things he did. Number one, he dedicated it. First, he took it in hand. Things can't be accomplished with the matters of life in your hands. They've got to be put in his hands. But then here's a beautiful truth. He takes them in his hands and then by prayer, he places them in the father's hands and he thanks the father. For what he has and for what he's about to do. In other words, in our life, if we want God to meet our need, we don't just surrender the need to him. We surrender the fruit of it to him. And we say, Lord, it's not just that this is a problem that I need you to solve. But we say, Lord, this is an opportunity for you to heap glory on yourself. And as you do this, it'll be as unto you. You know, one of the areas of our life, I think, where we we hinder and impede the work of God is by being selfish with the glory of what God does and not saying, now, Lord, if, if you'll meet this need, I'll tell everybody I can find how you met it. Lord, if you meet this need, I won't be quiet about it. I'll testify. I'll share about what you've done in my life. And so the first thing he did, he took it and he dedicated it. But then notice what it says. He distributed to the disciples. Put yourself in the place of a little boy that took his meal to Jesus and gave it to him, expecting Jesus to sit down and eat the loaves and the fishes. And probably that little boy was thinking to himself, I've done a great thing today. I've took this and I've given it to Jesus and now he'll be fed and the need will be met. And then Jesus takes it and he breaks it. And then as he breaks it, he starts giving it to other people. There's two things that he does here. First, He diminished it before he multiplied it. Let me say it this way. In the diminishing of it, he multiplied. He took that loaf of bread and instead of keeping it whole, he broke it. But he had to break it if he was going to multiply. You know, in our life, sometimes we have this expectation, this anticipation that the moment we bring something to God, it will only get better. Do you know that is often not the case? I think about a man that brings his demon-possessed, his devil-possessed child uh, to Jesus, and and he's heartbroken over the torment and misery and violence that's been done in this young boy's life. And the Bible talks about how when Christ cast the devil out of this child, that the devil screamed and rent the child and left him as though he were dead. Now, think with me for a moment, if you're that father at that moment, not ten minutes before and not ten minutes after, when Christ has raised the boy from the dead. But think about being that father in that moment. I brought my devil-possessed child to Jesus, and he killed him. It didn't get better immediately. It got worse before it got better. It had to get worse before it could get better. And You know, sometimes in our life when we bring those needs to God, we think, well, I'll bring this to the Lord, and then he'll drop something in my mailbox, or he'll have somebody come by and pay a bill for me, or... And and that's not what happens. Sometimes it gets worse. Sometimes it gets deeper. Sometimes it gets harder. And sometimes he takes what little we had and he starts breaking it. Not only did he diminish it, he distributed it. (laughs) 
He took what little they had, what little that boy had, and broke it, and he started giving it to other people. And you know, often in our lives, here's the process through which God meets our needs. He takes what little we have, he breaks it, he breaks our hearts through it, and through us, he has us start distributing it to others, blessing others, meeting others' needs. And that is the very process through which God meets our need. One of the worst things you can do in your life is say, things are hard, time to quit giving. Things are hard, time to quit loving. Things are hard, time to quit trusting. We better circle the wagons and button down, buy all the gold and dried beans and rice and guns and ammo we can and push the world out and and just start hunkering down. Now, you can do that, and there's plenty of people on the radio that will help you do it, sell you all kinds of things to help you. Uh, they'll, sell, they'll sell you meals that will taste just as terrible 25 years from now as they do to this very day. <laughs> but listen, that's not, that's not the perspective of the, of the believer. Instead, our perspective is this. I could keep this thing. And you know, for that boy, if he had kept it, it would have made one meal. One meal. But because he put it in the Lord's hands... And said, now, Lord, you do with it as you see fit. God didn't just meet his need. God met the need of thousands that day. Boy, it's an irrational, irrational method. So here in this passage, I'm almost done, I promise. Some of y'all's praying the Lord deliver you from this sermon. It's about to happen. God's going to meet your need. There's an impossible need. There's an inadequate means. There's an irrational method. But notice finally, there's an important message when God meets a need. Look at verse 12. I like this first phrase. It's it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, when they were filled. <laughs> That's my life verse. Somebody say amen. Don't you hate going to a restaurant, paying way too much, and, and not getting filled up? I get mad. I, I, I mean, listen, I'm not an unhinged individual 98% of the time. But when I go to a restaurant and pay more than anybody has any right to ask, and they don't even bring me a whole meal, I'm apt to do just inhuman things. And... I love that this, it's the first instance, right, of Baptist people eating at a buffet. Because the Bible says they took as much as they would, and when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. In other words, when God met this need, there are three things that it telegraphed, three things it taught. Number one, it was an important message about his providence. When they were filled... He said unto his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. It tells me two things. One, he knew what it took to meet their need, and then he exceeded it. He didn't say, well, if y'all get hungry, come back for seconds. Because he knew what it'd take to fill them in the first place. Uh, And I will tell you, every time God meets a need in your life, it's not just, and we'll say this here in a moment, but it's not just a testimony of his provision. It's also a testimony of his providence, that he knows what you have need of. God's met needs in my life I didn't even know I had till he met them. And God has sometimes met needs in my life before they even arose, and I could have never anticipated them. It's an important message about his providence. Number two, we said this, it's an important message about his provision. The Bible says, therefore, they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten now, I, again, I don't, and, and some of y'all, you're going to brand me, label me a heretic. I mean, the, and, and I, all I'll say is better men than you have done it. <laughs> but I'm going to give another opinion, all right? My pastor used to always say, I wonder what happened to those 12 baskets. 
Now, I do think there's sort of a prophetic dispensational perspective really about this whole passage and God uh, meeting, providing salvation to, to Israel as a nation, but that same provision met the needs beyond, or, or rather we should reverse that, him meeting the needs of salvation for the world writ large, but that also providing the means of salvation for the 12 tribes of Israel. And, you know, I, I, and we could talk about all those things, and, and it might bless your heart and bless my heart to do it, but can I just make a, a real simple just just country observation. My pastor used to always say, in his opinion, and it's my opinion too, they probably went home with that boy. Probably, if you had seen the aftermath, you would have seen a little boy, stomach swelled out to here, full of bread and fish, walking home with the silliest grin on his face, and 12 grown men behind him carrying baskets and headed home, waiting to look at the chagrined look on his parents' face when he answers the door. It reminds me of this. No man's ever poorer for trusting God. Now, it doesn't mean that you'll have all the material means that, that, that the world may tout and flaunt. But I'm just saying, you won't be poorer for trusting God. Whatever your need, trust Him. He'll meet your need. He knows your need. He'll go above and beyond your need in your life. But it's going to require that you trust Him. It's an important message about His providence and His provision. But I like verse 14. It says, Then those men... When they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. In every need that is met, there is an important message about his person. People looked at that miracle and they learned something about Jesus, about who he was, about what God's purpose for him was, about his ministry and his miracles and his might. And I will tell you that if God meets a need in your life and you've not learned something about him through it, then you've got the poorer end of that experience. The need may have been met. He may have healed your sickness. He may have healed your, your home or your marriage or a relationship or your heart. He may have, have paid a bill or he may have, have, have brought a solution to a financial need. But if you walk away from it and you've not grown closer to him and learned more of him, then you've missed what it was really all about. It's interesting, later on in this passage, the disciples will find themselves in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And they will cry out in angst and fear and terror. They will ask the Lord why he forgot about them and why he doesn't care that they perish. And he will calm that storm. He will rebuke their faithlessness. The Bible will make this commentary that the reason that they responded that way is because they considered not the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. They didn't learn what they should have learned about him through it. And so they were ill prepared for the next need that they faced. You know, one of the great things about God meeting your needs is not just that he meets your needs. I mean, that's wonderful. That's good. You know, I mean, Oprah's giving out free cars. So the better thing about how God meets a need is it better equips you for your next need. <laughs> when he's enough during a trial, it better equips you for your next trial. And I'm just telling you, this Christmas season, and listen, I hope you're not. I hope you're not struggling. I mean, I hope, I hope, I hope your life's an embarrassment of riches and God's blessing. But for those that are, can I tell you, God can meet your needs. I can't do it. The TV preacher can't do it. God may use his people to bless you, but at the end of the day, they can't do it. It's going to take God meeting the need in your life. But if you'll bring it to him, trust it to him, for him, you'd be amazed what God can do with whatever your present situation is.
Let's bow together tonight. A musician's going to come play. And I invite you to use this altar tonight. You might have a need in your life. It might be financial. It might be emotional. It might be spiritual. It might be physical. And it might not fit neatly into any of those categories. But you just, you'd say, preacher, I just need the Lord about something. If that's true, won't you meet him on this altar and ask him to meet your needs in your life tonight? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.